Mina Sankon Banwa, this is Van Pogam, this is Mayonaka Hour you're listening to now, and I have special guest Idolcast from the Idolcast podcast with me today. Idolcast, could you uh, say hello and uh, give a little brief description of yourself to the audience? Yeah, hi, Konbanwa. Um, I'm the Idolcast from the Idolcast, and I am a Japanese music enthusiast. I've been listening to Japanese music for, you know, 25 years, something like that. And yeah, I, I really enjoy kind of the old Kayo Kyoku era. I've done a lot of reading, a lot of research into this era. Um, I just find it really fascinating. There's a lot of just very colorful figures from this era. So that's who I am. Um, I have a, yeah, my podcast and I have a, a website where I write different things, and um, yeah, that's me. Yeah, thank you so much for agreeing to be on the podcast today with me. Um, and I'm really excited because you have such a profound knowledge of this era and um, just a wealth of information on your podcast and, and in written and in spoken formats. And you've had a number of guests on your show. You just go uh, in depth in, in a way that many others I've noticed cannot uh, or just have not. Um, so I'm really appreciative of what you do. I think it's so important. And um, I know a lot of Japanese fans from that era are also appreciative of your work specifically. Um, and I'm sure they're really excited that we're both going to be discussing uh, someone who's really important right now. Um, you know, he, he's, a, he's a household name in Japan and everyone knows him. Saizo Hideki, uh, he's just a quintessential idol, wouldn't you say? Yeah, especially from this era, sort of the early to mid-1970s. I mean, he was the biggest teen idol in Japan, no doubt about it. Oh, for sure. Um, I, I hear about him all the time on Twitter from all sorts of people from all age groups. Um, so it's, it's, he has a range for uh, in popularity that just goes from young to old. His appeal is really uh, strong, I believe. Um, and um, specifically, we're going to be talking about his, uh, his, his early years, his debut um, from about 1972 to around 1976. And um, just a disclaimer to everyone out there, Saijo Hideki, he is such an amazing artist. He has so many albums, so many records. He has such a rich history that we are definitely not going to be able to give you uh, uh, a, an entire summary of his, of his life, of his career, because he's done so much. Uh, so we're going to be focusing on the, uh, you know, the formulative years of Saijo Hideki that give you an impression of how he became who he was in the later years. So we'll be talking about his, his debut years uh, for the first 30 or 40 minutes on the podcast, and then we'll move into the review of his first six studio albums. Um, and with that, yeah, so uh, I prepared a lot for this, um, and I know I probably you have too, no doubt, right? Oh my gosh, you would not believe how much I have listened to Saijo Hideki <laughs> in the last few weeks. I've been going around singing to myself, which, um, <laughs> much to the amusement of my family, for sure, since uh, no one else knows the words. But yeah, these are, these are such, it's such great songs. I've, uh, yeah, I just, um, I've really enjoyed preparing for this. Yeah, it, it's been an amazing, amazing journey listening to his first six albums and going into the history of them and seeing who worked on them. It, it's so surprising that he was able to accomplish so much so young. It's, it's, it's truly remarkable. And, you know, I have a lot to uh, thank uh, 
uh, from the, the Hideki Twitter. Hideki Twitter is one of the most devoted Twitter populations there are. So Gold Earrings, Midori, Silas Mybarn, uh, they are just amazing and they've helped me out uh, immensely throughout this entire process. And I have nothing but appreciation for all of his fans on Twitter who have been celebrating Hideki and who have been championing uh, his cause, his his voice, his being. Like, they really, really love him. And, uh, and there's something so special and so endearing about that. So, Hideki Twitter, thank you so much if you're listening. And now, um, so, Saijo Hideki, he was discovered pretty young. He left uh, Hiroshima City, at, I think around 16 or so, to Tokyo to start his career. And then, around the time, uh, I think it was 1971 or 72, where he kind of got picked up by RCA or, or Victor Victor Entertainment Media. Is that, is that right? Yeah, yeah. He came up to Tokyo um, and signed, I believe that was 1971. And then um, he sort of handed this debut song and records it. You know, he practices for like a month month and a half and they finally they give him a recording date and then you know he has a, a debut date and all of a sudden here he is this weedy 16 year old kid with this like deep massive voice like even back then it's really funny if you watch the old footage of him at 16 and he's just this like scrawny kid and then he starts singing and you're like whoa <laughs> where did that voice come from yeah, it's it, it's definitely a, a very unique voice to me uh, in terms of Japan. I know um, he was probably influenced by other artists from the 60s at the time who kind of uh, probably had not a similar voice, but something that he built off of uh, himself. And he transformed into, uh, you know, the, the singing voice that he he uh, he became known for, which was I, I felt he had a very unique vibrato. Um, it's such a they had so much depth for his age that uh, when I listened to his debut single, uh, it's it's just astonishing to me. It feels like he had been singing for decades. Uh, and, you know, that was just his first kind of professional uh, endeavor. Um, so, for, so for me, uh, him as an artist at that age, his debut is is so massive to me. It's, it was like an epic, epic uh, start to his career. I mean, and it was because it lasted decades after that. So I'm, I'm sure the people who were around him uh, when he was first beginning were kind of like, they knew that he had this career ahead of him because listening to him, there is no way you could deny that he was just born to be a singer. It's interesting listening to some of this very early material because, yeah, you really do hear that he has this sort of uh, technical skill and the sort of uh, raw ability there already and you can hear that he has this musical sense that a lot of debuting idols really don't have and I like to kind of put him up against um, Gohiromi who debuted around the same time and now Gohiromi today you know is a wonderful performer you know he's very talented I love Gohiromi but back in 1972, you know, he was this kid scouted at about the same age as Hideki, but he was scouted on the street, you know, for being cute. And <laughs> it just gives you a very different feel to sort of his first debut single where he, you know, I don't think his voice is even broken yet. He's got this very high voice and um, it's just this very different sense. And their careers kind of ran side by side. 
but you know even at the beginning you really do get that sense that here's Hideki he's a musician first and I think he stays a musician first you know his entire career yeah go Hiromi so there there were three right I I, I remember listening um, to a podcast where someone said that there were three uh, major uh, young teen idols uh, at the start of the 70s right well yeah, I mean, yes and no. There were the Shingo Sankei, which were the, the new big three, and that was um, Saijo Hideki, Go Hiromi, and Noguchi Goro, who all debuted about the same time, about the same age, and they actually became pretty good friends, and they did a lot of um, television appearances and stuff together, but there was also Sabare Kenji was still there, and um, it was kind of like the big three plus Sawada Kenji for a while, but there was also, um, you know, these great, I mean, this was the era of the male solo singer, I think, you know, because you also had these wonderful Anka singers who were there, um, Hosogawa Takashi, um, Itsuki, yeah, yeah, Itsuki Hiroshi, um, and then you had sort of the other big singers, um, Mori Shinichi, um, you know, Fusei Akira, uh, Nakamura, uh, what's his name? Nakamura, well, you can cut that. But there was, there was just a lot of sort of very good male vocal talent around at that time. Um, young, you know, young male vocal talent. And I think that one of the interesting things about Hideki is that he really does set himself apart from the crowd at kind of, you know, very, very early on where um, you just, you know, you'll watch these old, or I will watch these old music shows from the 70s, and you just, you hear the difference when he comes on. His just, his singing style is so different from anything that anyone else was doing at that time. He really just, he just pops, like he's just this bright, this bright, <laughs> this bright voice, you know, in the middle of all these sort of 70s kaiokyoku shows. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. His voice does pop, and he does have a very yeah, unique uh, singing style for that for uh, that era. And I'm not that well versed in every you know male singer from that era, but I can I can tell uh, because it, for one, his following, uh, and, and two, he has this discography that uh, if he you know if his voice wasn't special, I mean, he wouldn't have had the career that he had. I mean, it was just a, a massive career. And, you know, he does cite, like, The Ventures, Rolling Stones, Jimi Hendrix, Janis Joplin, a lot of Western influences when he, like, kind of what gave him his inspiration for how he sings and how he formats his, his, his style. Uh, but before that, in the 60s and 70s, do you know maybe who he could have learned from or, like, what Japanese influences gave him uh, the kind of... Um, motivation to be who Hideki was as a singer at his debut? Oh, that's a good question. I I actually don't know. <laughs> I don't know about any Japanese influences per se. My impression is that he, you know, he grew up kind of listening to this sort of American rock and roll and doing these covers. And, you know, when he was scouted, it was as sort of a, um, be because he reminded these record executives of Sawada Kenji, who also came up doing these, um, you know, rock and roll covers, um, like Satisfaction, and I, th I think Hideki, like, Sawada Kenji was known for his cover of Satisfaction, and I believe Hideki also 
um, you know, would cover that song. And so I, but I'm sure he listened to kind of the big, uh, hits of the day and sort of that um you know the group sounds and and there was a lot of good japanese rock and roll at that time but i couldn't say off the top of my head who his Mm -hmm. (laughs) his japanese influences were but i'm sure that it was sort of you know the the big rock and rollers of the day because this was also right around the time when there was this new movement coming up called new rock and a lot of the group sounds guys were kind of going into that and since Hideki did end up working with some of these guys associated with new rock I can only assume that he he also followed along with sort of the group sounds to new rock you know he must have been listening to the same kind of you know PYG and and all of that kind of stuff yeah I I would imagine um you know when when a lot of people talk about city pop's origins uh sometimes it uh, it always leads back to either uh, Otakeichi or Yamashita Tatsuro, but um, you know I think now there's a growing uh, movement towards accepting that Saijo Hideki also had a, a big hand in kind of setting the foundation for what would become city pop because city pop is music that is at its heart uh, Western inspired, and when you think about who was championing. Western-inspired music, uh, you know, you have that new rock movement, but then you have uh, Saijo Hideki, who's kind of moving into this um, uh, kind of disco AOR vibe towards the mid-70s after kind of he starts building on his voice and uh, and finding who he is as an artist. But that era from 1972 to 1976, I think, you know, it, it really is him discovering who he is as a as an artist and, and his place in the music industry in Japan. Um, it's really enlightening going over all of the music and, and everyone who you worked with because he, he had the opportunity to work with uh, a lot of amazing people, uh, for one. A lot of great artists who themselves led great discographies after the fact. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that um, with certain albums um especially towards the kind of mid 70s he departs from the idol kind of uh identity just a little bit and he starts becoming more of like a funky uh solo singer artist kind of guy i'm not sure if uh, male artists uh, at the time in the late 70s were considered idol anymore you know the idol culture for me i'm not too familiar with that in the 70s can you give me a little bit more background on it yeah sure and so as a teen idol i mean that really was you know sort of the new big three i mean by the mid 70s ish i mean that really the the hysteria for that was kind of dying down by like 76 77 and funnily enough what you do have come in around 77 sort of as hideki had kind of peaked not as an artist but sort of his teen the teen hysteria had kind of peaked but you had the bay city rollers come in (laughs) like roller mania was huge in japan and um then by the time you know kind of roller mania petered out you had um johnny's and associates um this there was another three sort of young talent sort of popped up sort of around 19 like the late 70s early 80s Um, who were collectively known as the Tanokin Trio. And they were very directly influenced by um, Sancho Hideki. Like, there's one, um, and, you know, we can get into it, but, you know, there's a song that Hideki does with, like, that was made famous with, like, this little mic stand move. 
And um, one of the Tanokin trio does a song where he does like the same mic stand move and you see it and you're like, oh, okay. (laughs) He clearly has watched a lot of Saito Hideki uh, live performances. But um, yeah, so I mean, I think by the time like the sort of the mid 70s rolls around, um, then the big thing that comes in is the Bay City Rollers. Yeah, I'm, I'm not too familiar with Bay City Rollers, but that, that, that's something I really need to work on. Cause, you know, my, my specialization is 80s, but I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm slowly starting to uh, kind of uh, hit rewind on the clock and, and go uh, towards the, the 70s again. Because, you know, there's so much there that's unexplored and uh, even less people are doing 70s than they are 80s in, in terms of uh, discovering the music and, and writing about the music. Oh, the, the 70s is fascinating and I think you know in the 70s what you get with a singer like Hideki that you won't have later is that all of this the recordings that were being done I mean this was all analog right and so you know as you get into the 80s and especially into the 90s and you know especially today um, I mean people can go you can go in the producers can go in and kind of nudge um, a singer that their vocal track like backwards and forwards a little bit you know they can um you know as you get into the 80s you're really having this um sort of your the drummers are playing to like a click track right and so they're keeping this very standard time it's all very um standardized (laughs) i guess is the best word for it but in the 70s you know these guys would get in the studio and you know, Hideki, a singer like Hideki, who is so technically gifted, and, and he is a musician, you know, underneath everything, and you can hear him, he's singing with that band. He's not singing, you know, to a click track. He's not singing on top of, like, like he's singing karaoke or something. He's singing with the band, and especially the live albums, which, um, you know, we won't get into those there's so, there's so many of them but you know you hear yeah. the difference in the versions between the live albums and the recorded albums and the you just hear the way that he plays with the band he plays with the songs he plays with phrasing um it's just very these songs are all alive in a way that i think is hard for us to understand now in 2021 that you know he can get on stage and he can sing a song that, you know, you've heard on 45, 100 times. But when it comes on stage, it's alive and he'll, you know, he'll, he'll just mix it up a little bit. And he'll, there's this one great song. Um, uh, oh, what is the title? Oh, uh, Shijo, Shijo no Ai, Shijo no Ai. And the, the, the version on his, like, Hatachi Memories album he, like the whole beginning is done with like tempo to uh, rubato, like it's all done sort of free tempo. Like he just sings it with a piano backing, and that kind of accompanies him. And you know, it's just you don't, you're not going to hear a singer do that today, because they've got the click track going. They've got you know all of this technology. Um, it, there's no room for the human voice really. And I think when you go back to the 70s, you do get that human voice. It really, really just shines through. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I, I, I'm lucky enough to have um, some of the big game Hideki records uh, on vinyl that um, uh, a Twitter uh, fellow Twitter collector, a gold earring, sent me. Um, and 
you know, the quality on these records is amazing. Uh, you hear uh, things that you, you would never expect from a, a vinyl record because you, you could hear people scream his name. Like, you could clearly hear things that are just so... Um, so perfectly nuanced in between the music and the crowd and, and him. And it's just, uh, his live performances are definitely so intense and so amazing for the time. And I mean, and w with good reason, because he, one of the few artists probably that applied themselves to the music in a way that was just un unseen before or just un unheard of before. I'm not sure if anyone else was doing what he was doing, because I mean, even the big game, the, the videos for uh, like the big game performances, you know, he's on helicopters, he's, uh, you know, doing gymnast work, like he's on a motorcycle, he's just doing things that are fantastic in a way that I don't think anyone had ever done before in Japan. Uh, and you know, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but uh, I've never seen that and I don't think anyone was doing the things that he was doing and that just kind of ties into how he attacks uh, the music with his voice and his just his love for music because you can just tell right off the bat uh, from his debut single that he's just you know he is the music and music is part of him and there's just no separating that he's just a born musician a born artist um, and that that's really intimidating for a lot of people and do you think maybe that's why uh, he received a, a little bit of criticism in the 70s for that I think anyone who went against sort of what was expected, you're gonna receive criticism. And maybe this is a trite comparison, but when Stravinsky debuted, you know, the Rite of Spring, you know, people hated it because it, was, it wasn't what they were expecting. It didn't sound like they were expecting. It was just too bold. But now it's considered one of the classics of the Western canon and, you know, not that Hideki is the rite of spring, but I think that there is an element of that where he is so forward thinking in a lot of ways that, you know, at the time, I think it does kind of lead to these, this pushback because it's not, he's not doing what was expected of him or what was expected of a teen idol of the era. Because you think, you know, here's this kid and while his sort of contemporaries were doing, um, dramas and television dramas and um sort of teen movies and you know he did those things but that wasn't his main focus and i think that that focusing so much on his music and performances and you know traveling with um you know like a, a band like a brass section you know <laughs> i mean that's expensive <laughs> yeah. um so it's it's you know he he wasn't doing that you know he wasn't doing like the safe thing he wasn't doing the well-trod path he was really kind of going his own way doing his own thing and i think anytime you get an artist that does that especially a young one um you're definitely going to get some criticism from sort of the elders yeah yeah i think the um the phrase is uh, the nail that sticks out gets the hammer or something like that um, that definitely probably applied to Hideki in many ways. Um, and But the interesting thing to me is that his record label um, must have believed in him regardless because they kept, you know, they, they kept allowing him to make more music and, and tour and uh, just put out Hideki merchandise and do live shows. So obviously the criticism that the music industry, well, music critics were giving Hideki weren't phasing uh, 
for one, Hideki, he probably did not care. Uh, and two, the record label, because the record label obviously believed in what Hideki could do and who he was as a person. Um, so that that's always curious to see all the Saijo Hideki uh, criticism coming out of the like, papers and um, kind of uh, journals at the time. Uh, and when I hear people on Twitter kind of talk about uh, how he was treated unfairly, um, it, it's just really surprising to me. But at the same time, I can I can see what you say because um, he was doing stuff that was unexpected and that probably was not as welcome uh, because again he's breaking the pattern he's breaking the mold uh, and he's shocking people and he's being bold and uh, I, I know Japan has or has had a tendency to favor more conservative and a little bit more restrained uh, things in terms of um, you know, artists and music and things like that uh, and I think Hideki uh, Hideki didn't care I think Hideki just wanted to be who he was as a person um, and, and that to me is so powerful and it's so uh, Western in a way um, and it kind of just shows you uh, the connection to the music and the connection to the West that you know, Saijo Hideki was thinking internationally. He wasn't thinking in terms of uh, only uh, being Japanese. He wanted to be like a global kind of artist that uh, everyone could listen to and that, that's so admirable, I think. I think that for Hideki, you know, as you go through these albums, the mix of genres is so spectacular that, you know, you really do get that sense that he was pulling from all sorts of different sources and he just had an ear for, for everything. And you do get some of the Western genres, but I mean, he can sing the Kaiokyoku also, but um, yeah, yeah, something about that sort of rock and roll that early rock and roll spirit that kind of just it stayed with him i think in these early years these early teen idol years oh for sure i definitely think that and i mean uh, in that era you know 70s early 70s to mid 70s were such um you know it was such a, an interesting time for music in general i mean what a time to be alive back then when you have all of these new genres that are emerging and all of these new artists that are taking it in different directions and here's Hideki who has the opportunity to uh, turn it into something different and to, to uh, be inspired by all these kinds of new music. Um, it, it really shows in his music at that time and uh, his albums have so, so much variety and so much dimension to them. Uh, it gives you a little bit of everything. Like you could tell he, he just has a natural appreciation for music and for rhythm and for just things that sound good. Uh, and that is a mark for me of like a true artist, I think. Yeah, and I, I think what really shines through kind of above everything else really is that love of music. And, you know, with the, with the teen hysteria, because, I mean, let's be real, he was cute. I mean, he was so cute, like, back in the day. I mean, you know, he, he grew into a very handsome man, but, you know, back in 72 to 76-ish, I mean, he was gorgeous. He was, you know, and he had this charisma. You know, it was understandable that all these, you know, he, he got this big hysterical sort of teen mania following. And it, it is very easy for a teen idol who has that kind of audience that will buy whatever he puts out, will purchase anything with his face on it. And it's very easy when you have that kind of um, power, you know, to just cash in and say, 
I'm just gonna I can put out whatever I want it doesn't matter um, because they'll buy it anyway so I can put out garbage and these kids will buy it but you know where Hideki shines is that he he didn't do that you know he had this big audience and he said you know I'm gonna put out the best quality that I can you know they deserve to hear the best that I can offer and that attitude is so admirable and it's not always what you find when these big sort of teen idols um which I'm not I'm not gonna name names but <laughs> yeah, you don't you do not always hear that with these sort of these booms when you get the the you know Hideki mania you get Bay City Roller mania you don't always get the quality of music to go with it and I think that sort of you know at the end of the day the testament to Hideki's power is that you know this 50 year you know legacy is that he did put the effort in and you know he had the power to do whatever he wanted he didn't just put out garbage and coast along he said all right um, I'm gonna hire helicopters I'm gonna hire a brass section to travel with me I'm gonna get you know I'm, I'm gonna do the best work that I can do because I deserve it my fans deserve it um, I, I, this is what we're gonna do yeah I, I, that, that dedication and hard work uh, you could hear it in every aspect of of his music uh, in his um, kind of uh, way of performing um, there's a sincerity there that, and you know that it, he just it didn't happen overnight for sure. This is him working day and night very hard to be the best he could possibly be. Uh, so there's definitely no kind of um, resting on his laurels at any point in this uh, early debut uh, era of his life. No, even when he should have rested, honestly, because I think, you know, when you do get towards the end of 74 into 75, um, he starts injuring himself. You know, just because I think that when you push yourself that hard for that long, um, it's it's like an you know he was like an athlete, and you need sort of that downtime. And he he kind of um, like hit a hit a brick wall metaphorically, sort of at the end of seventy four into seventy five, where he you know ends up in the hospital um, because of of you know with a th with throat soreness or um i'm assuming it was probably vocal nodules even i don't know if they had the the vocabulary for that back in the day but um you know so he ends up with the hospital for vocal nodules i'm assuming um and then he ends up breaking his arm later on that year in i think like april um on the set of, his, of the drama that he was doing and so it's like you know you just from personal experience i think you know when you see uh somebody that's just been pushing themselves that hard and then they start injuring themselves in accidents you're like oh my gosh you know take a break but um yeah he just he just wanted to work he just wanted to work and work and work and work yeah uh i i can i can probably uh relate to that i think anyone who uh, is dedicated to what they're doing wants to do it night and day wants to do the exact uh, the the, um, the absolute best that they can do and you know I, I can I can definitely feel that in his music and everything he does him as a persona uh, at that age too I've seen a couple of you know his live performances too back then and, and yeah he has that natural fire to him where you know he is uh, 
he's just on the stage and he is just giving it all he has. Yeah, what what I hear in his voice um, in these early days, and maybe this is just me as a horn player, but he sounds, <laughs> he sings like um, like an instrumentalist almost. Like he sings like he's a, a trumpet player. And um, he does these great like phrase endings where he'll do these like he'll just throw in these like glissandos and you think who else is is singing like this mm-hmm. <laughs> like no one sings like this <laughs> it's really yeah. yeah it's wonderful and and just the way that he hits those notes um i think i described jonetsu na arashi like he was um like punching like it's almost like he's punching punching the air out of his lungs you just you just hear the the impact um and the other thing that he does that i think is kind of interesting is for a lot of these sort of um the songs that have a lot of this dramatic energy behind them he he kind of comes like he anticipates the beat a lot of times and so um you you hear it kind of so there was this show in the 70s um yoro no hitsdagio um, and, and they would have sort of singers come in and, and they would do sort of this relay song at the beginning of the episodes and singers would come in and sing little clips of each other's songs, basically like 30 seconds of someone else's songs. And when you had, you know, these singers like Ishida Ayumi singing um, Hideki songs, you know, they it's not that they're bad singers or they can't sing, but they they would be either sort of on the beat or like a little relaxed and it just sounds kind of limp and you're like, mm, that's not how that song is supposed to sound. <laughs> you know, because when Hideki does it, he's like coming in and he'll like, um, with Donuts no Arashi especially, like he steps on the um, the chorus vocals, like he steps on those things. He's like, he's, he's just coming in just like ahead of the beat all the time and it just makes it sound so dramatic and, and forward moving. Um, and yeah, I think that um, just stuff like that you really you miss out on. I think in in today, I don't you don't have singers doing stuff like that. I think you'd have the you'd have somebody come in and correct them on the computer to be like directly <laughs> on beat <laughs> if yeah. somebody even tried it. Yeah, it's, it's that um, it's that kind of imperfection. I think that uh, it it just makes it sound so much more human and real. And less artificial, and uh, there's no one who embodies that more than Hideki. I think um, Saijo Hideki is is kind of like the, for me, one of the most sincere artists um, uh, from Japan uh, from that era for sure. And a lot of uh, what you know I, I find appealing is that he is so kind of just like um, carefree about uh, his. Uh, presentation sometimes like he will sometimes fall or he'll just like rip his clothes and he just doesn't care it's just an amazing way of presenting yourself on stage and um, in 1973 in japan is when i believe um, color tvs exceeded that of black and white tvs and so it was kind of like the era for uh, it was like their mtv era because now they had singers on tv uh, showing their songs instead of uh, it, them being exclusively on the radio or it just being black and white kind of flat performances. So now you had room for these outrageous, outlandish uh, performances that Hideki kind of just latched onto and made his own. And um, I think that's that, that was a big draw for a lot of people too, especially young girls because they had, you know, all these flashes of color and light and Hideki who's just larger than life. Um, 
and him being uh, a little bit taller and a little bit like older looking than than younger than than boys of his age at the time also it kind of um it gave him this strange kind of masculinity that uh kind of sold the image and i think rca uh, really, really uh, sold that 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 kind of attribute of his as a strength, and and as where other uh, idol agencies probably saw it as a you know a negative. Uh, RCA um, probably thought this was actually good. This, let's let's go ahead and and do this because it, it works and um, Hideki makes it work. It probably wouldn't have worked if anyone else as well, but him and his personality and the way he does things. Um, it's it's it was probably the best move and i mean it was because it launched him into a stardom that lasted you know almost five decades right yeah yeah and and just to go back to go hiromi again you know when he debuted in 1972 the same year as hideki i mean he deliberately was kind of marketed as you know sort of a beauty that wasn't male it wasn't female it was sort of this ethereal beauty yeah, and it, and if you do look at you know old um, pictures from that time of Gohiromi, you you kind of see and you're like, oh wow, like yeah, like this sort of you know genderless, ageless youth. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Hideki, you're right. Yeah, he was kind of um, you know he was the wild and the junanasai. Like he was the he was action Hideki. He did have this very masculine, you know, kind of this deliberately masculine image to him, and I think that's also why you see him as the model for so many uh shoujo manga you know heroes of the time like famously um you know rose of versailles yeah that that trio of idols the uh, the gohiromi um noguchi goro and yeah which who also was a um you know not to slight noguchi goro who was also an excellent singer and um I, you know he also i think was a musician at heart but his singing style was a lot um, softer, and um, he. There's something about Hideki, you know, the, the way that he punches his syllables. He's very precise in in all of his pronunciation, his enunciation, just the way that he hits notes. Um, is just very. It, to me, it, just maybe as a horn player, he reminds me a lot of like a, a trumpeter or a trombonist, like playing. Um, whereas I think Noguchi Goro is still very much like a, a singer in sort of the Enka Kaiokyoku mold. It's just, you know, he's also very talented, but it's just a very different sound. Yeah, uh, was was he more like the sensitive kind of? Uh, Goro Noguchi was like the sensitive boy, <laughs> and then I think uh, Gohiromi was the cute one, the and cute Hideki one, was yeah. like the wild one. So yeah, the wild. <laughs> that's that's funny to me. It really is looking back on that and how everyone kind of had this uh, arc archetype to them uh, that the record labels tried to sell. Um, and uh, a, a funny little factoid about Hideki was that he had kind of like a following with with boys and girls. Apparently, it wasn't just females, but he had like a population of boy fans, which was really odd at the time. Apparently. Um, and a lot of those boys, uh, you know, eventually they uh, started to get older and uh, the obsession with Hideki kind of faded away and then it became kind of like an embarrassing thing for them. So they kind of uh, abandoned Hideki as uh, they grew older, even though they probably still enjoyed his music. But that to me was, uh, it was kind of funny because um, not that many, uh, I, I thought that the idol phenomenon uh, for, you know, male idols would be that, you know, just, just girls, but apparently 
uh, Sergio Hideki had that much charisma where he had uh, a population of male uh, fans too. So, I mean, that, that, that just speaks to the volume of how uh, versatile his music was. Uh, he could be looked up as an idol to boys also and not just uh, like a, a love interest for girls. Yeah, and, and that is where I think you get sort of the guys like um, in the visual K scene and the glam rock years like Gact and Raleigh who, you know, grew up kind of looking at Hideki and thinking how cool he was. And then, you know, they enter the music industry and um, sort of take take that and just sort of go go with it, take sort of their love of that performance and that sort of over the top stage energy and just like run with it. Uh, so, so you think that maybe Saijo Hideki influenced Visual K? Oh, no doubt. Yeah, 100%. He influenced Visual K. He influenced, um, I mean, I think they've even, guys like Raleigh have even, you know, the, the glam rock especially. But yeah, because there's, I don't know if I've posted it online, but I mean, there are performances you can find of, um, you know, Hideki with Gact, which is pretty funny. Oh, really? I, I have not seen that. Um, but oh, I'll I, send it to you. <laughs> yes, please. I would love to see that. Oh, and I'll, I'll say, too, that, um, you know, listening to some of these albums, especially when you get to those mid-70s ones, or I think, like, the fifth album especially, um, I heard sort of elements that I would, that, that pop up again in sort of the late 70s with acts like, you know, Sera Masa Nori and Twist, and, um, you know, Harada Shinji, who was a, a piano singer, songwriter, um, and you, you hear where those artists are sort of coming from, because I think Hideki was just so on top of what was sort of trendy and popular and what sounded good, and, um, because I, I don't think you would have an act like Sera Masanori and Twist sort of popping up so so big in the late 70s without um, Saijo Hideki doing his rock songs um, in the in 75, you know? Yeah, there were a couple songs on that 75 album where I heard them and I was like, oh, this sounds like Haruda Shinji, except like hmm. it's three years earlier than him. Oh, wow. <laughs> Um, you know, I'm just starting to really uh, start to appreciate this era more and more. The, the, the more I listen to a lot of the recommendations that you give and that uh, other people on Twitter have been kind of recommending, it's, a, it's, it's amazing how broad the music, um, the music was in the 70s in Japan. It's, it's, it's almost hard to wrap your head around because there was so much going on. Uh, and when you think about it, you know, everyone has, anyone who's, who has a vague interest in um, retro Japanese, vintage Japanese from that era, they'll be able to give you one or two names and that's sometimes the extent of their 70s Japanese music industry knowledge. But uh, when you have someone like uh, yourself on the show and you, and you just start naming all these things, it's like it opens up a floodgate of new information. You're like, well, I need to look this up. I need to broaden my own uh, uh, perspective because there's just so much, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah, and looking at um, the the songwriters as well, you know, is always is always interesting. And um, yeah, I, I try not to name too many names out of nowhere, but it's it's hard sometimes <laughs> not to just sort of list off um, list off artists. 
because we I don't we have, didn't even get into the songwriters. Maybe we can talk about them with the albums. But um, there's some interesting, interesting cast of characters for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, we are just about to get into that. I think um, we've we've uh, we've kind of covered the era just uh, just enough so that people could get uh, you know a nice impression of, w- of what it was like for Saijo Hideki at his debut and. Uh, the reception he received and you know how he was kind of making albums consistently I think he had like two albums every year or or, or so and uh, that seems to be a uh, uh, trend um, for a lot of uh, younger artists in Japan at that era in that era they were just pumping out these records like like nothing like it was just natural for them to just be in the music studio 24-7 and performing and uh, it's, it's really remarkable uh, and I have nothing but respect for Japanese artists, and I think they deserve way more respect. And uh, you know, people like Saijo Hideki, who knows, maybe someday they'll be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame because they're just now starting to uh, make waves in the West, and we're all starting to have access to their music. And I hope the record labels uh, are are starting to understand that you know, people in the West want access to this. We want this on Spotify, on Apple Music, on whatever. You know, we just want it available so we can hear it, appreciate it, evaluate it. Uh, it's, it's definitely viable in the West, and I think they're just starting to kind of get the hint in a way, because uh, a lot of things are being re-released and, uh, in, in vinyl format, in CD format, in digital format. So they are becoming slowly aware that people in the West like this, and that even if people don't know Japanese, they can appreciate good music, and that good music is just good music in the end, and I think that is so powerful. and. And I just hope it keeps growing, and I, I really think it will, because Saijo Hideki, he deserves way more credit than what he's been given uh, in Japan and abroad, and, you know, I think he's he's slowly starting to get that. I, I think so, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I hope so. And I, I think the if nothing else comes out of City Pop, then sort of a broader appreciation for sort of this classic Japanese music, then I think it'll be well worth, well, the trend will have been well worth it, for sure. Oh yeah, you know, one thing definitely leads to another, and I think the chain of events uh, have been in favor of Japanese musicians and artists from that era, and you know, I think uh, everything comes in waves, and um, I think the second wave for uh, 70s era Japanese music is, is starting to uh, start to coalesce right now onto Western shores, and this is just the beginning for sure. So, uh, with that, was there any anything else interesting that you thought people should know about Saijo Hideki from that era? Anything, anything interesting or factoid or something like that? Ooh, factoid. Um, well, I I would just say that if you get a chance, if you haven't seen it, to watch the 1975 tour documentary that he did called Blow Up Hideki which sort of um, follows him on tour, this, you know, big nationwide tour that started with this sort of massive festival, I think 30,000 people going to uh, Mount Fuji just to see Hideki. I mean, it was sort of this event of, you know, an unprecedented scale. Um, And, and, you know, all the way through to um, uh, Osaka Stadium, which is no more, sadly, but... um, you know, he was, I mean, there had been, in 1974, there was this big festival called the One Step Festival, um, and, which was, I think, the first big, you know, big, big festival in Japan. But then the second one, you know, 
and it was was this Saijo Hideki concert and um you know in Osaka Stadium I think he was the first solo singer to you know to fill Osaka Stadium um or the first idol singer to do it and you know this this documentary it's um it's not like a nuts and bolts tour documentary it's very sort of impressionistic um i think there's a lot to offer even if you don't speak japanese um you know there's all the clips of the stage shows and a lot of like just very interesting sort of footage of what life was like you know back then um and of course you get to see the fans too who are all just I mean, they're so they're so cute. Like they really are, just very very cute. And yeah. they get interviewed. You know, he'll there'll be little sort of <laughs> cut-ins of you know the filmmakers asking the fans like, well, what do you what do you like about Hideki? And you know, they'll be like, oh, Ashino no guy Takura. Like, oh, he's got really long. You know, like he's he's tall. Like he has long legs. I like them. Um, you know, or they'll like talk about his like ooh, sparkling eyes, or you know, just like oh Zenbu, like everything. <laughs> it's really cute. Oh. Well, uh, yeah, I, I think we can speak for everyone by saying that uh, everything about Hideki is wonderful. I think uh, he has so much to appreciate as an artist, as a person, uh, as a musician. He's just um, top notch in every way, and uh, uh, we really appreciate him. We really do. Um, so, with that, uh, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break. And as soon as we get back, we will go ahead and review his first six studio albums.、Uh, so, yeah, we'll be right back. And thank you. ハウスバーモントカレーだよ。リンゴとハチミツとローリとケテル。ハウスバーモントカレー。あったまるよ。Welcome back to Mayonaka Hour. I am Van Pogam and I am here with Idolcast. And we are going to be discussing Saijo Hideki's first six studio albums. We won't be discussing his live albums or his, or his cover albums because he has so many. That's, that's going to be a whole other episode at some point because there's just so much to talk about there. So we're just going to be focusing on the first six studio albums starting at his debut. Um, and his debut was in 1972, and it was,、um, what was the album title? Oh, well, his debut single was Koi Suru Kisatsu Ni Wa. But the album was Wild and Old Junanasai, the Wild 17 Year Olds. And it starts off track, you know, track one, side A Koi Suru Kisatsu Ni Wa. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that song. I could see why it was a single. And the, <laughs> the intro to it is just so cute, it's so endearing.、Uh, you know, it, 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 listening to it now, after like all these years of knowing where his career went, it's so endearing and it's so poignant.、Um, and it's, it's like an innocent 17 year old boy who's just embarking on this huge music journey. 
Uh, and it, it's, it's just Hideki at his most pure. I love this single. I love this album. It, the album is really interesting because it's such a grab bag of stuff. I think at this point they really hadn't totally figured out what they wanted to do with him yet. And so you get sort of like this, it's like a, a potpourri or a, a box of chocolates <laughs> or something. It's just a sampler. And so, yeah, you've got the, the, the very, very, very kaiokyoku, like Tsutsumi Kyohei tune, um, Koisuru Kisatsu. And then you have um, sort of the songs that more point to the direction that he would go in, which were the ones, um, you know, Chansu wa Ichido, like that kind of more jazzy, um, the Suzuki Kunihiko songs. But then you have like these great live tracks sort of <laughs> like pulled in there, like on side B. Which are just some like, oh my gosh, because he does this cover of um, Paul Simon's Mother and Child Reunited, where I think kind of signals where a lot of his covers, you know, if you, um, you know, it's sort of pointing off in another branch of, of his catalog, really, which is all those great live albums, because he takes sort of this... I mean, I think the original is kind of, I mean, would you call it like reggae or like sort of that 70s <laughs> yeah. white guy reggae, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it kind of turns it into like more of like a soul number, like a soul or like a funk number. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of good stuff on here, but it is very much sort of a mix of a bunch of different, of like just like a bunch of different tracks. Yeah, yeah, that that live sounding one. Them the English intro that he it, it made me tremble. I'm like, oh my god, the screams from the crowd. They were like, you know, crying out to him, and you know, he's crooning. I, I just it was such an amazing, amazing song, and then it goes into like a really funky breakdown. You know, I was almost on my knees. I'm like, oh my god, this is so good. It was definitely one of the standouts on there. I you know I loved um, uh, love me to Marimo. Uh, it's so. <laughs> Wow, incredible emotion. The vocals were so powerful. Uh, you know, I, it was enthralling. His, he, he had vocal presence on that song, deeply rooted in just raw feeling. Like, I love Rob Me, uh, Love Me, Itsumare Mo. That's probably one of my favorites on there. Well, and then you also get that great track, which sort of becomes the fan favorite, which is um, the last one on side two. Uh, Kimio uh, Wasurenai, you know, which is kind of a, um, you know, the recorded version's kind of cheesy, like little, like it's got like this like cheesy Latin beat <laughs> almost. But I think that really becomes a, a fan favorite, you know, doing it live. Um, it just sort of, it's one of those ones where I think the seed planted here on this very first album kind of just, it grows and grows. And um, it becomes kind of a different, not a different song, but it, it becomes bigger than just the recorded version. Like that song is very much alive. Yeah, I, I agree with you. That just uh, does sound like a, like a sampler of an album where it just gives you a variety, you know, just, uh, just gives you a little bit of everything to see what works, to see what kind of like uh, catches your attention, to see, well, oh, well, maybe I might like what he's going to do in the future if I like this track. Because, you know, you have some stuff that sounds really 60s in there, uh, some some really funky stuff. Um, it's, it's, it gives you a little bit of everything. I, I really do like it, and I, I, I do like that final track, the Kimiwa Surana, Kimiwa Wasurenai. It's it's really good. It's, um, I almost, you know, feel like I, 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 I might have 
almost shed a tear. It it was that like poignant. Um, and you know, now that he's gone, listening to it, it really makes you feel the passing of time a little bit more. Uh, and it makes you feel like time isn't as linear because it's like, oh my God, this, this person, it feels like you were, you know, listening to it at some point. And I don't know. It's just, it's a very complex feeling. Uh, no, I've, that's what, that's been me like the whole time I've been preparing for this episode is just really just feeling sad that he's no longer with us for sure, for sure. Because he is so alive, you know, in these, in these recordings, like you, you almost sense that he's still here, but um, no, it, it is, it, you get, you do get a bit of that bittersweet bittersweet feeling yeah especially when like he cuts uh, cuts into a track and he just starts talking oh that's such a an idle thing too that that was really cute in that first album where he really is you know sort of they do have him kind of double down on like the idol and he's like you know um g- giving like these little spiels like before the track <laughs> like um was was it like uh like skinny not the like it's <laughs> just like you know oh um oh gosh I, like oh i want a girlfriend like oh would you be my girlfriend like that kind of just very cheesy um yeah. it's, just, it's cute it's very cute yeah i will say one more standout for me was aiga hoshioni uh which is like it, it to me it sounded like a little bit gospel it was like uh like very hauntingly beautiful ballad but it had a little kick to it i think that one was a really great one and that's another one where he kind of breaks it up with some spoken word uh stuff um that's one of my favorites. Are there any other anything else on there that really calls out to you? Um, no, just you know that the the um, the singles are all you know just a lot of fun, and you know they threw the B sides on there. I mean, it's the album is it's a fun listen. Um, it's just it's not like an album that was necessarily like conceived of you know like like a like an FM radio album to use sort of the. 70s lingo um it was much more like very in the, the am radio um category which it's you know a bunch of singles and a couple live tracks and you know it's a very enjoyable listen for sure yeah yeah i agree it's a, it's a great debut for for saijo hideki without a doubt i think we get a taste of who he is and who he will become in this album uh, i really enjoyed it and that takes us to 1973 seishun ni Seishun to you, Kisetsu. Yeah, that, um, yeah, Seishun ni Kakeyo, which is, oh my god, this song, I've been singing this song to myself for, I think, three weeks since you first told me <laughs> that we were going to be doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is like the, so the, the title track is, you know, the album Seishun ni Kakeyo, which is, to, to my ear, sounds like one of those classic sunshine pop like the fifth dimension um like right out of that like big sunshiny kind of um like that la california vibe i just i love it yeah let's bet on youth i i think it's uh the entire album has a kind of uh yeah like a a sunshine of youth on it it's very uh it feels very optimistic it feels very uh youthful it really does Uh, it starts off beautifully with that, that that single uh, I love the backing vocals on a lot of these songs. Um, he does sound just a tiny bit more mature than um, his previous album, just a little bit more. You can tell he's starting to warm up now and we're getting to know him a little bit more. For me, I thought it was another uh, kind of grab bag situation where you get a little bit of everything. Yeah, yeah. And for me, one of the standout tracks was the Koneko um, Tonezumi, which is, <laughs> I mean, it sounds like essentially like a tempters song where they do this great um 
sort of uh, they they double track like they you know they he, they do the double track vocals and um, it just gives it this like like a group sounds sound to it um, it's a really like just I don't know I've one of the standout tracks for me um, yeah it definitely this album is also another sort of grab bag one very much more in the AM radio mode of just you know the the singles are the main focus and then we just throw in a bunch of um, sort of interesting or you know sort of tracks that maybe wouldn't necessarily play well as singles but you know mm-hmm. hey you know <laughs> hey Suzuki do you have uh, an interesting song for us yeah okay here you go <laughs> I mean that's kind of that yeah. that kind of mode oh for sure Ko Neko to Nezumi Little Cat and Mouse uh, that uh, the filter yeah it sounds like they added a filter to the voice where it gives it a really interesting I haven't I hadn't heard anything like that from him before yeah and he ne- he never does anything like that again really um, because you don't need a lot of um, you don't need a lot of vocal effects on Hideki's voice because he is the vocal effect but in some of these early albums you do hear them playing around with this yeah so like yeah they they make him sound kind of like um, the tempter Shulken where they, they double track his vocals, I think they, they probably compress it too. And then on that first album, there's one, I think it's, um, oh, I forget which track it is, but they, they throw this big plate reverb on him. And I'm like, mm, that's sort of like gilding the lily. You don't really need the big plate reverb on Saijo Hideki. I thought Zekio was, was really good. It's an interesting vibrato on that. It's a really gorgeous ballad, I think. It has a lot of dimension to it. Um, and I, I don't think he had been doing really uh, like flourishing ballads like that that are just expansive yet. This is kind of like one of the first ones where he's just like really experimenting with what he can do uh, in terms of what uh, in terms of ballads. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd sort of um, a little bit more mature ballad. But then I was just looking over the track list. There's also that great um, Makaino Koji song, which is the. Uh, Tabiwa uh, Kimamani, which is got that like country feel to it. It's like a country <laughs> rock song, and it it has that great breakdown, which is like the the like the it sounds like the um, there's that instrument called the Jew's harp, and it sounds like somebody doing like a riff as if they were playing like a Jew's harp. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is really cute. Um, yeah, it's a it's uh, it's fun. Yeah, that that's a really fun one. It gives me a really the kind of like spirit of youthfulness vibe to it. It almost sounds give me a little bit of an impression of a, like a Beach Boys almost. I don't know, like a surf rock almost. It's 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 definitely interesting for sure. I, I thought it was it was fun and and the theme of it, travel as you please. I thought maybe that has something to do with it. They're trying to have a little bit of an international uh, flair to it. Well, it's kind of a difference too with the, um, you know, because so many of these early songs were Takatakashi lyrics and Suzuki Kunihiko uh, music, and he, you know, he he is a jazz guy, you know, at heart. But then um, that one is a Makaino Koji track, and he's more like a um, more like a rock and pops guy. So I think you get kind of a different a different feel than mm-hmm. some of the the other ones. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Did you, um, when you listen to Hoshikara Kito Otoko, mm-hmm. Man from the Stars, did you get a little bit of a David Bowie kind of feel from that? I don't know. I thought that thematically it was a little bit Bowie because Bowie was doing his um, his own kind of space <laughs> theme sort of around the same time. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I guess you could call it David Bowie. I mean, <laughs> thematically, sure, the guy from the yeah. stars. Or you could throw it back to um, uh, Sawada Kenji and the Tigers with the... Um, they had they had a movie where um, you know basically there was like a space princess and a lot of um, <laughs> I sort haven't of seen it. Prince of the Milky Way themed lyrics. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, okay, that could be it. Um, I also did like uh, let's see, Natsuno no Dekigoto, Events on a Summer Day. The intro to that is really, uh, really interesting with like the swirling vocals and. You know, uh, I feel like the vocal effects on this album, they really uh, they really went at it with the vocal effects, uh, more so than the previous one. They were a little bit more experimental in what they would do because the, the production on this is it's a little bit more complex, a little bit richer than uh, previously. I, I thought that this one was a really, really interesting one. And again, he breaks it up by talking in the middle. Uh, and he has a little, little piece about the beach and it adds a really nice touch to it. I think... Um, Usually when a singer does that sort of thing, I don't really like it. But when Saijo Hideki does it, it, it works for me. Yeah, kind of a Beach Boysy, yeah, summery, summery song. Yeah, yeah. Again, just I think that just testament to the fact that this was a real this kind of grab bag of of songs. But I mean, I I think it gives for a very enjoyable listening experience for sure. Because I mean, you know, who wants every song on an album to sound exactly the same? Not me. Right. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, I don't like um, like music that just sounds like it was uh, uh, produced on the same day. Basically, it's like, well, this all came from one yes, recording session. Yeah, yeah, and some of them, especially when you get like the singles and the B sides on the same album, you definitely hear like back to back. You're like, oh yeah, that was that was done in like, the same <laughs> session. But um, yeah, like this this album for sure, you get songs that are like kind of like, oh, this sounded interesting. Um, yeah, let's let's just go ahead and record it. Yeah, overall, I, I really enjoyed this album. Um, I'm not sure if I liked it more than uh, the previous one, but I did think that this one was was fun too. It was definitely a fun a fun little album that I that I enjoyed. Yeah, this was a great album, and uh, that leads us to 1973, which um, the cover uh, the cover art for this one is really explosive. When I saw it, I'm like, whoa, exciting. And it is exciting Hideki, 1973. Um, and it has that really killer track, uh, Jonetsu no Arashi. Uh, I, be- I, mean, I believe you mean, Jonetsu no Arashi yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I stand corrected. <laughs> I mean, what a way to start an album, right? I mean, amazing. Storm of Passion, and you get a Storm of Passion, uh, without a doubt. Uh, this is Wild Hideki. Uh, this is what I would expect from Hideki. Uh, that when he says that Arashi, oh my God, it just hits you like a typhoon. It's so it's so raw. It's so so unrestrained. Well, he rolls that R too. That Arashi, like he really <laughs> like leans into that um, <laughs> that like rolled R, which is great. I love it. Yeah, I can't even roll my R's, so that's that's so impressive to me. It really is. Um, but yeah, I, I thought the, the background vocals kind of echoing what he would say was a cute addition. I thought that was, yeah, that's one of my all-time favorite uh, Hideki songs for sure. Yeah, and it was one of his first kind of very big hits. I mean, it made the top 10 in the Oricon chart. And um, I think it, it, you know, it sig- signaled a lot of, um, you know, 
where where he was going in these next few years. I mean, the um, the song he kind of did this whole stunt for his first debut anniversary, sort of combined as like a um, a promotional event for the single. But he you know he kind of shows up <laughs> like clinging to this rope ladder, like descending <laughs> on a helicopter into the <laughs> fan meet. <laughs> and, there's pictures um you know kicking around on twitter and stuff and you just kind of see him and he's got this like you know these white bell bottoms and this sort of like toga-y top and he's just like he just looks like he's having the time of his life and you know i'm sure he was yeah yeah some of those outfits are just amazing i definitely want to uh recreate one at some point for halloween or something because man those, those outfits that he wore were spectacular they really were they were david bowie worthy um so this album um you know from the title exciting hideki i thought it would be just a little bit more over the top a little bit more excessive but what you find is that there's a lot more restraint a lot more um discipline a lot more kind of just like toning it down in certain areas uh maybe cleaning it up cleaning it up is a better word uh but there's a lot more restraint i feel yeah, I, I mean, to me, it sounded like a, a pivot album almost where, yeah, maybe they were sort of clearing out some sort of, you know, old recordings that he'd done for other sessions and, you know, maybe putting some of those songs in, but then also kind of these songs pointing at a new direction. Um, yeah, it's it's sort of got an odd kind of pivot album feel to it, to me, where it's it, I feel like it doesn't really settle in a single mode. Um, at any time yeah yeah it definitely keeps keeps things uh shifting in in a way that's kind of uh chameleon-esque uh it it definitely has a a little bit of everything in it just like the previous albums there's there's no solid theme to it uh uh in certain yeah like you said in certain uh parts it does kind of pivot in in strange directions like uh um it's 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 definitely it's a strange one i feel for for Hideki. i didn't i didn't expect that one from him uh it's kind of like a paradox uh of who i would thought he would be in this album uh because the singing style is 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 tame compared to uh the person that's on the cover i'm like well this doesn't sound like the person who's on the cover uh this sounds like someone else um so maybe that was just kind of something that they added on that he had done in the past and they just needed to to fill fill the album up with something um but there are some standouts on here for sure. Chigiratai. Uh, <laughs> Chigiratai. So and this one is, um, I I don't know, I really, really like this song. It's kind of the, I call, well, I mean, this is just like my own classification, but I call them like, the, they're like these showstopper, like, like these bittersweet, like showstopper, like tragedy ballads, like where oh, yeah. <laughs> they're like I kind of these that. sad <laughs> topics, and but then he like kicks it up into a banger, <laughs> which yeah. you're like, oh okay. Yeah. Um, but the I that the lyrics for that were written by um, Yasui Kazumi, aka Zuzu, who is one of my favorite sort of ca- you know characters um, from around that time. She was a you know, very well-known lyricist, and she had worked with um, some of the group sounds guys, and um, yeah, just a very, very cool lady for sure. 
Yeah, that I could tell from those lyrics. Like whoever wrote that, wow. And when he pauses at the end to like scream, oh my god, that was that was a hit for me. I'm like, this is it. This is this is what I want from an exciting Hideki. <laughs> from exciting Hideki, where he he breaks in with the um. It kind of reminds me of like leader of the pack with the like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know they're like, look out, look out, look out! But you know, <laughs> Hideki style. Oh, it's so good! It's so dramatic. I love it. It's yeah, yeah. and um, he has that great uh, appearance, which you can find online at the um, the Nihon Record Taisho, like the Japan Record Awards, where he's wearing this like little bow tie, <laughs> just like breaking it down on stage. It's wonderful. Yeah, definitely a precious, precious song on here. I really, I really enjoy that one. Um, We'll say also, Suashi no Futari. Uh, it has kind of like an, a Santana vibe. I don't know. Did you get anything like a West Coast kind of feel to it? Yes, that one was a total Santana vibe, and that's mm-hmm. one where I was kind of thinking, like, wait a minute, <laughs> like, what? What is this album? Is this exciting Hideki? <laughs> like, like took us out west? But yeah, yeah, that was a fun one. Um, the uh, Ubai Tai Hito, which was like this funk track, and you're mm-hmm. kind of like, hmm. Um, and that one was produced by Bob Sakuma, who is kind of a name. Um, I think he's worked a lot in like anime and um, mm. soundtracks like recently. But yeah, apparently in 1973, he was producing funk tunes. Mm, that makes perfect sense. It does. Also, Kinji Rareta Koi, Forbidden Love. Uh, that was a really amazing track also. It really it took my breath away. It was really, really upfront and personal Hideki from start to finish. I really loved it. Uh, it really drew me in. You know, he has that ability where he just like, he can kind of push you away with how strong his vocals are, but then he can bring you back in. It's like he's breathing and exhaling and it's just musically, it's so genius uh, how he can do that almost fluently. With uh, He makes it just sound so natural and so easy. Uh, this is a reason why Saju Hideki is, is so major for me, I think. It's just like, I, I know very few artists who can just channel that uh, with such, you know, finesse and just ease. He, he does it, and he does it uh, with poise, and I, I think it's amazing. Um, for me, also, uh, Ai no Anchi, Criminal of Love. Oh, so, yeah, that was a good so one. So powerful. I mean, the subject matter, uh, the part about God laughing at him, I mean, it's so deeply personal and deeply emotional, but it also has rhythm and groove and highs and lows. Uh, you know, from the first verses, you don't know where it's going to go. And then all of a sudden, he just drops it into that really funky, melodic uh, kind of beat. It's so essential, Hideki, for me. It's a perfect ending to this album, I think. Yeah, and that one, the lyrics were written by um, this very well-known lyricist, um, Senke Kazuya, who was like, you know, award-winning, award-winning lyricist. Um, yeah, he's really good. Um, the other track on this album that I thought was kind of interesting was the um, oh, No O Kakeru Shoujo, which to me sounded like a Harada Shinji like piano ballad or like piano song, but just, you know, years before Harada Shinji <laughs> was like coming up. It was really funny. I-, I listened to it and I was like, wait a second, this really sounds like Harada Shinji, but... It wasn't. It was Saijo Hideki. That uh, piano intro is just so beautiful, leading into like the the, the trumpet. Um, well, it's the trumpet leading into the piano, but it's so very sweet. I thought it was a very beautiful song for sure. And you know, um, another one that kind of sounded 
like they had doubled the vocals, like they had recorded the vocals twice or something, was the uh, Kuroko no Futari. Um, it had like a vocal reflection on it. It made it sound like there's two Hidekis like doing a duet. It was uh, really, really beautiful. And maybe that's why uh, they called it uh, Koroko no Futari, uh, Two Lonely People, because it has his voice kind of like with a reflection or they had like it uh, repeated, but it sounded like there was two Hidekis and they were singing together. And uh, so it kind of, uh, maybe they're playing off of that name, Koroko no Futari. Uh, it's, it's really nice. I, I thought it was an interesting uh, production style. And for the time, you know, the, these kinds of, um, these kinds of effects, I'm sure, you know, were kind of experimental. Uh, I don't think there were very many idol artists experimenting with uh, these kinds of vocal reflections and uh, echoes and things like that. Yeah, it's another kind of overall grab bag of an album. Um, yeah, with some of these sort of little interludes and, you know, working with sort of these interesting people. Um, yeah, but yeah, no overall theme really to this one either, but um, it was exciting in places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. I, I do think it was um, an effort uh, on the label's part to make him a little bit more commercially viable, a little bit more of a product, I think. Uh, just from the cover art, you can tell that they're trying to sell an image, to sell uh, something. Uh, definitely, uh, they're trying to sell Hideki because he's on there, you know, on his knees with the with the um, microphone and he's shirtless with the beads and he's clenching the beads. It's so like, it's so dramatic. It's so like, wow, this is exciting. But uh, when you listen to it, it's a little bit restrained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess this also too, like coming at the end of 73 would have been right before he popped off big time with, um, let me check my timeline here. Yeah, yeah, it would have been right before he popped off because this came out, or Chiki at the Eye, that was 1973, September. And then you had his um, starring, um, yeah, like the Vermont Curry ad, which was the Hideki Kangeki, like his little catchphrase, that was in November. And um, yeah, this album came out in August, I believe. Uh, June 25th, 1974. Oh, okay. Well, no, June then. Um, oh, no, that's Hideki Volume 5. I'm sorry. Hold on. That's exciting, Hideki 5. Uh, October 5th, 1973. Okay, so this came out in October. And so then, yeah, like the... I feel like this was right around... So they would have been prepping this album before he would have really, like, have been, you know, hit that stride of, like... You know, I'm doing the Vermont Curry ad. I'm on um, Terauchi Kantoro Ika, like the the TV drama, which ended up getting like you know something like 31% ratings, like this massive hit. And um, before he would have been in like the uh, like Aito Makoto, like the movie. So this would have been like right before all of that would have been happening. So I think yeah, probably the the company was like, well. Come on, let's move some product. Take your shirt off. (laughs) 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 Nope, and uh, it definitely worked because he did pop off after that. So, (laughs) so this brings us to uh, 1974 Kizu Darake Norora, which I think is one of his best albums ever, honestly. Yeah, I think um, this one and the album after it are just absolute masterpieces um yeah 
He's a Dadake no Roda. This whole album, like, start to finish, not one dud, not one boring song, like, not one, you know, experiment gone awry. Like, every track on here is so good. Yep, yep, I have to agree. And they, uh, they definitely know how to start strong. I think a lot of his first songs on a lot of these albums are sometimes his best songs on there. It starts with... Uh, you know, Kizu Darake no Dora, which is uh, an amazing, epic, epic song. I mean, I was speechless. It explodes. And this is the Hideki that I really love, that I know. This is the exciting Hideki that I was promised. Well, what about that, like, that intro, though? Like the... And then it just hits that bomb, like that <laughs> low, like, just that low... Yep. Uh, and then like the <laughs> intro swells and then he like the horns like from above like like all the piano and everything and then he comes in and you're like oh, oh i'm feeling it i'm feeling it <laughs> yeah i was feeling the excitement i really was i mean i it, it has so many dimensions it has so many levels to it it's really complex it's beautiful it's 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 what i want from my hideki i really really enjoyed that song so much uh, and what a way to start it! This album—it's it really goes, uh, really goes to really interesting places, and it's always really good. It gives you a good range. And uh, this is the album where I start to feel where he is more adult. Like this is the uh, you know the, the more mature Saijo Hideki that is starting to develop as a person, as an artist. You can tell that he is growing. His voice even sounds you know a little bit deeper, but with more complexity to it. Um, I think that he's changing here and it's going into a really, really amazing place. Um, after that single, after the first track, it moves into Kasetsu uh, no Utsuri Kawari. Um, and this is a really wild song. It just feels ethereal in the beginning, but uh, it's also beautiful and his voice has a great vibrato on it. It's very soft and controlled. You know, I feel like he, if he was taking vocal classes at the time, like they were really, they were giving him some amazing classes because his voice sounds amazing now. There's so much breath breath to it and range. Uh, the production team really knows how to complement his voice with the arrangement and the mastering. Uh, so this is definitely one of my favorites also. Yeah, to me, that's another one that's also kind of of that sort of that sunshine pop sort of genre, which um, I'm a huge fan of. I really, really like this style. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, like... <laughs> I don't know it's just such a it's just such a uh, you know coming from Rora and then you get this like little sunshine pop song it's just very I don't know it's a good transition it kind of you know letting us letting us in easy to the rest of this album we're, we're gonna start strong but don't worry it's gonna be you know you get, you get a chance to catch your breath a little bit right yeah it's not all dramatic there are playful moments on here Sekai wa Bokura no Mono uh, that one is really fun. Uh, I'm not sure if you caught the meowing at the beginning, but he does like a weird meow. Oh, and... yeah. It was another <laughs> one of those like weirdo country songs. I'm kind of listening through and I'm like, am I transported to Nashville? Like, <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, there's some honky-tonk moments on here, which is, which is funny to me. It really is. Um, you know, it, it reminded me of Takeuchi Maria when she was having like a or some of her early albums had like a honky tonk vibe too. I'm like, well, I guess this was a thing over there for a while. Were they just like <laughs> quirky country vibes to it? I, I mean, I could appreciate it, you know, because it, it just shows you that uh, Saijo Hideki can sometimes, uh, he can be playful and sweet and uh, and not too serious. And he can 
can joke around um, and that that has so much merit to me uh, as an artist I think that he doesn't take himself that seriously all the time and, and that's so important for musicians and for artists no one wants someone who just takes themselves seriously all the time no well I think you also and you know we talked about this before but I mean I think it's just a testament to the fact that he clearly loves music and he loves all kinds of music and so I think where on previous albums maybe some of the grab bag aspect was more like producers saying we're gonna try a bunch of things and see what sticks I feel like by the time you get to Rora it's more like he's picking sort of things that interest him um, rather than the producers picking things for him to see what works or not it's more like him just being playful yeah, I, I can so appreciate that. I mean, it's his, it's his fourth studio album, and he's already done all these other uh, live events and stuff. So I think maybe the production team is giving him a little bit more uh, freedom to be be who he wants to be, which is very appreciated. Uh, at the towards the end of that Sekai wa Woko Danomo, he has a little like jazzy scat bit oh, where he yeah, just that's like. Right. <laughs> I ha- I just started cracking up. I'm like, what? <laughs> It it was so amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, why? Like, where else? Where else are you gonna hear that? Nowhere. I mean, it's <laughs> Nowhere. great. It's so great. And then um, you get those Casey Rankin, who was this um, American who moved to Tokyo, and um, just to to be a rock and roller. And yeah, he Casey Rankin contributes a couple of songs, including on the side one, Uwaki na Omaini, which is like this, um, just like this rock and roll, just like pure like pure rock like fm like album like an album rock cut like you could just slap this on like any classic rock station um and they'd be like yeah all right this guy like this guy rocks <laughs> yeah yeah that that one's really interesting too there's a lot of rhythm to that and there's there, also there's a little honky tonk in there too but it it's a really gorgeous song there's a, a interesting guitar work on there and the piano melody at the beginning uh, it reminds me of something. It just—it's uh, probably because it's Casey Rankin, and he probably based that off of something else. But uh, there's a little familiarity in that track. It reminds me of something else, and I can't pinpoint it, and it's driving me crazy. But if you do find out, or if anyone else knows that's listening, send that to me, please, because <laughs> I'm gonna be thinking about it for a while. Um, that uh, th- so there's there's so many different kinds of Saijo Hidekis on here. It's like you get a little bit uh, of every kind of. Hideki, and I really love it on um, Aito Yujo. Uh, that one is so sultry. It's like his voice, uh, and, and it comes right after Sakai wa Boku no Mono. So he's playful in one, and then he becomes this like really sultry, very adult, almost kind of like uh, Sade kind of mood. I don't know. It, it's 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 quite the shift from the previous song. Um, well, to me, this one sounded like straight kaiokyoku like the kind of mm. thing that a um yeah like a mori shinichi or mm-hmm. uh, you know one of those more adult um fusei akira like one of these guys might have um mm. sung just like straight kaiokyoku mm-hmm. yeah yeah i, I love kaiokyoku and uh, and uh thanks to uh, alan ikasaka i've been getting into that way more i read a lot of his articles and you know his blog is just amazing um let's see what else on here is good really good um well side b track one hageshi koi oh my god yeah now this love yeah this is like the banger to end all bangers and you and i will tell 
a little story here. Um, so when I first started listening to like these 70s songs, like maybe 10, 10, maybe a little bit more years ago, I, you know, I had this, this sort of CD of like best of the 70s because I had no idea where to start. Right. So I was like, OK, best of the 70s. Sure. <laughs> and one of the tracks on there was Hageshi Koi. And I was just kind of listening like, oh, yeah, this is this is nice. And then this song comes on and I was like, OK, stop the presses, <laughs> hold everything. <laughs> I'm going to listen to this song on repeat for 500 times because this is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. And yeah. when that like little those weird like <laughs> I don't even know what that effect is or like that instrument, those like the. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, what is it? What even is that? But those little like, <laughs> like a synthesizer whoop, whoop, jingle whoop, thing, like those yeah. little like, <laughs> like loops, those little reverse loops or whatever, and they they come through, and you're just like, okay, okay, we're we're in for a treat here, and mm-hmm. you really, really are. It's so good. Oh my god, yeah, this is how I want to remember Hideki Saijo forever. This song is peak peak Hideki for me. Like this is it. This is who he is. Like at his most raw, at his most primal. And that's why he called it Hagashi Koi. I mean, it's so cool. It's so epic. Uh, it's so funky. He attacks in this song. It's so it's so good. I, I really, really like it a lot. Um, uh, side B also, some, uh, let's see. Oh, well, this has that great um, Bara no Kusari, which, um, here's my trivia, which the lyrics came from a, um, they were like submitted, there was like a contest to like submit lyrics. And oh. yeah, yeah, that's where these lyrics came from, which is kind of funny because there is a tiger song, um, Hana no Kubi Gazari, very similar title, um, which was also like lyrics done by submission. But um, oh, wow. this one, I don't know, I, I really, that 50s retro style, whatever it was, was in the air at the time. And um, I really enjoy it. I think maybe for listeners in 2021 who aren't sort of immersed in music from that era, it can sound a little um, like dated. But um, if you just sort of let yourself relax into it and just go go with the 50s-ness of it, um, <laughs> it's really good. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely something that you could just listen to casually um, without having to uh, get too invested in it it, it, it does really good as, as, as BGM it's kind of like just background music because it's so non uh, non aggressive I think it, it's, it's beautiful Rose Chain I think is what oh yeah and this one too um, this one has um, the famous mic stand choreography which <laughs> um, you see copied again and again and again and um, I think uh Sera Masanori does it. Um, oh, what's his name? Tahara Toshi Tahara, one of the Tanukin trio, um, yeah. does it as well, where he just like lifts the mic stand up and just like rocks out. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's so many, so so much, so much good stuff on here. Uh, and uh, Kimito Jiuni Kurasetara. Oh my God! Yeah, this is another. Um, oh yeah, this is another Casey Rankin joint and. This one has that great George Harrison um, guitar on it that like yeah. that he used all through All Things Must Pass. It's like really, I don't know, I find it very, um, very appealing, this guitar sound. I just associate it immediately with George Harrison. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I could, I could, I could hear the Casey Rankin on here because it does sound like a country ballad. It's, it's wistful in its theme and, and its lyrical content. It's emotional. Uh, it's one of my favorite slower songs from him. Uh, I really do enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a really great song, also. And I also will uh, definitely mention Sabishigari uh, Yanokimi because this one has a, a really cool cowbell on it. And I, uh, I love cowbell. Anything with cowbell, and I'm just instantly drawing it. But there's also a good brass solo on there. I thought it was an interesting take on funk. Uh, it was different from what I previously heard uh, from him also. So but a, lot, a lot of cool stuff on here, I thought. Um, yeah, not one dud. Not a single right. dud on this whole album. Every single track is really good. Yep, 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 definitely. And it ends with a, a ballad, Hirusugari uh, no Barado, Ballad in the Afternoon. Uh, and that one was really good too. I thought it was like a surfer rock kind of ballad, which made it made it weird because you never know what you're gonna get with a, with a Saijo Hideki song. Sometimes, like you don't know where it's gonna lead to because it starts one way. And then it ends somewhere completely different. So it's like, uh, well, it's, it's, it's always a journey. And, and I can appreciate that because no one wants to know what to expect when you're listening to a song. You know, you want it to uh, surprise you. Uh, and that element is so hard to do sometimes for artists. But for uh, Saijo Hideki and the music label and the production team, like this is what they plan on. Uh, so even though the album is varied, there's always the element of a surprise that they want to introduce you to, which is very appreciated for sure. And this brings us to June 25th, 1975, Hideki, I'm sorry, Exciting Hideki Volume 5. And it starts with uh, a, a really, really, again, they always start with a really, really funky song, Goino Oso. Which is runaway love, runaway of love. I'm sorry. Um, really, really exciting. This is exactly what I would expect from an I uh, from an album called Exciting Hideki Volume Five. Um, I feel like this should have been on the first Exciting Hideki because it's it, it's so good. Uh, it, it's really wild. It's fun. There's romance in it. It's surprising. It's playful. It's everything you love about Hideki Saijo for sure. Yeah, it really has everything. And I think this is one of the songs that is mentioned by people like Raleigh um, that really kind of sparked their their imaginations, you know, when it comes to, to Hideki and being a performer and, you know, how, how you can be a cool rock and roller, but also, um, you know, be on television in, you know, in the wind machine. And, and I think... There's this great performance that he does on TV. I think it's Yoda no Hits Dangio, but he's wearing like this, you know, kind of flowy, you know, the the white bell bottoms and like this white <laughs> yeah. shirt, but like this deep V and he's got <laughs> like this little like cape, capelet thing on it. And, yeah, yeah. you know, he's got these pearls on and, you know, just the wind machines going and he's got this <laughs> smile on his face and you're like, I love okay, it. yeah, you're like, I get it. <laughs> this is a great song. That's so awesome. Yeah, that, that's definitely one of the best ones. And, uh, you know, I'm noticing a pattern where they sometimes start with the strongest song. And that's, you know, that, that's that's a good good way to do it for sure. Um, I would say Sayonara no Shukumei. 
It has a bit of a country twang to it, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to see that maybe uh, Sajjo, that he likes that kind of country uh, vibe. It's, it's really nice. I think his, his voice sounds a little different than uh, any other song I've heard from him. Uh, and he does that sometimes where he just switch things up out of nowhere. Uh, but that's fine, you know, he's, he's definitely allowed to. Yeah, yeah, he does. And I, th- I think that this album, again, like Rola, is, you know, start to finish just excellent track after excellent track. But it is, and it is a grab bag, but it's more like, again, I think things that interested him versus things that he'd been asked to do just to, you know, as, a, as like a test or something. These are, I think, songs that he finds interesting. Um, and then the, the third track on here is one that I thought you would enjoy because it does have that kind of sort of proto city pop sound. It just very, um, the, uh, I don't know, just kind of that like sort of um, easy listening, kind of smooth, smooth feel to it. Yeah, it, it gave me like a yacht rock kind of vibe. Yeah, exactly. It's very like pleasant and enjoyable. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, for me, very, very melodic, soft rock. I, I really do like it. It it gave me an, a, a very Eiichi Otaki kind of vibe. Um, and that makes sense because uh, they, around this time, I think they were both active. Uh, and the song's called uh, Umibe no Eki, Eki, I think. Yeah, Umibe no Eki. Uh-huh. Yeah, that, that's an amazing, amazing song, too. I really, really enjoyed that. Um, and, of course, uh, Seishu no Banka. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah, this one <laughs> was a lot of fun. This one and the one after it are both have this kind of, like, very 70s, like, samba. Like, the... <laughs> I, I don't know, like... I just associate it with the 70s, but this very, like... Or the 60s, too, I guess, but... Yeah. Sort of this samba, like, Latin... This, like, Latin feel that you would find sometimes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a really good track. Oh, yeah. I mean, he croons on this, like, never before, I think. I mean, he hits every note with such ferocity. It's so well done. It's It just seems so easy for him to scream in such a controlled way. It's It's amazing to me. I mean, when I scream, it just sounds like... You know, a Wilhelm scream from a movie, it's just terrible. But when he does it, it's just like so beautiful and so controlled. I, like, it's, it's amazing to me. He's such an artist and performer. Um, and, uh, uh, Shakunetsu no Samba, Burning Samba, uh, that's a really fun one. And the Spanish influence is definitely, definitely all over it. I mean, it's filtered in a very interesting way, too. I mean, none of his music is ever boring, but this one really. Uh, emphasizes uh, being different and a little bit fun and, uh, and diverse away from the album just a tiny bit. Yeah, I it's think exciting. this is another one where his vocals are double-tracked, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They, uh, and I've noticed that on every album, he'll have at least one that has like a double a double vocal kind of effect on it. Um, boogie. Boogie is a boogie. And this one... <laughs> When I heard it, I was like, wait a minute. He has <laughs> to be a downtown Boogie Woogie Band fan. And apparently he was. Um, but yeah, this one, there was so, there was this band um, that was very popular, you know, at this time called the Downtown Boogie Woogie Band. And they had this massive hit, uh, Minato no Yokohama, which, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's got this like line where they kind of like, you know, it sort of grooves along and then it stops and the, the lead singer's like, you know, Anta, Anokoma nan nan sa. And um it yeah, this song is just like extremely in that mode and uh, I find it very enjoyable. But 
I think maybe if you didn't know who the downtown boogie woogie band were, it wouldn't be <laughs> as fun. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, I really liked it. I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I, I'm not sure who the downtown boogie woogie band were, but I do. I really like this song. Uh, for you know, it gives me a little bit of a crazy Ken band vibe too. Oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, a little, a little bit, bit of, of that crazy Ken band. I think they're also very much in the mold of the downtown boogie woogie band, which mm. I, to anyone listening that doesn't know them, just uh, I think there are performances of uh, Minato no Yokohama out there, but um, yeah, well worth a look. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And if you want to maybe write an article on some of the songs that you recommend from the that you've been talking about during this podcast, I will link it also so people have a chance to kind of uh, check out some of the recommendations you've been giving because they've been solid gold. Um, yeah, that, that one was so much fun. There's so much great storytelling in a lot of these songs and um, the vocal effects on uh, Boogie and Zaboogie are, are really cool. It's very cinematic in a way. Um, and so let's see what else is on here. Oh, well, the um, the side two has one of my sort of favorite songs of everything that I listen to, you know, for, for this podcast, which is um, Tsubasaga Areba, which is this gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, um, sort of like soul. Like I, I would put it in the category of... Um, like a like a Tina Turner, um, you know, River Deep Mountain High, like one of those big wow. like soul review, like those the songs like that, like the big gospel numbers. Um, mm-hmm. Oh my God, it's just it's absolutely beautiful, and it you know it starts off with this little oboe, um, like this little oboe line, and then it goes right into this like big like gospel-y, like soul song, and um, the lyrics too are very shoujo manga like. It, it reminds me there's this kinky kid song um mm-hmm. you know like about like what is it like boku no senaka like kanega aru um like wings are coming from my back and to me like the lyrics have that same kind of feel of like i i don't know there's something just very like like that bittersweet youthful like you know at at 20 you know which he was at the time like you think you're so old like when you're 20 you feel like so old um, but you're not <laughs> like you're 20 you're a kid but there's something about that that you know I wish like wings could like sprout from my back and I like fly away and I don't know it's just very this is something very appealing about that song I, I just was very taken by it and there's a live version on the Hideki like the Hatachi like his um, that live album a live version of this song which is just oh my god it's so good um and he really you can hear a lot of what he is capable of sort of as a live performer um the way that he'll play with tempo and phrasing and um everything this song is just amazing i can't say enough good things about it no i have to agree with you 100 uh, i mean the intro is like you said it just takes your breath away it's one of the absolute best songs from Saijo Hideki. He lets you have it all. There's just no stopping him. Once the song starts, it hits you like a train. I mean, it's so powerful. It has peaks, it has valleys. It has everything you could want from a Hideki Saijo song. That's every element you would expect from his music. It's softness, bittersweetness, power, and force. I mean, it gives you goosebumps. It's, it's an amazing song. I have to agree with you 100%. Uh, another proto city pop song I thought was Doyo no Yoru, 
Um, I mean, it's a vibe from start to finish. It feels like a Saturday night. The vocal processing on it is amazing for the time. Uh, it's a top-notch production. It's so smooth. Uh, another one of my favorites. And of course, it finishes, the album finishes with Kanashiki Tanjobi, uh, which is an interesting end to the album. It's a uh, very, like, it has like that sad piano poignancy kind of a kind of feel to it. it it brings the entire album together in a way that's soothing and wonderful because it's a celebration, but there's also an element of sadness to it. I think it's it's beautiful, it's perfection to me. Yeah, this was another one that kind of reminded me of that sort of Harada Shinji sort of style of um, like song. Um, yeah, it's, it's another really nice one for sure. And that brings us to uh, the sixth studio album, uh, which translates to Youthful Days Filled with Love and Passion, 1976. And I feel like this um, this album and this year for him was a year of change, I think, you know. I think um, he was trying to definitely find himself as an artist of previous albums, and maybe he had already gotten a good idea of where he wanted to go next and maybe who he was as a person he was hinting at in the previous album that, you know, he wants to grow wings, like uh, that, that one track, he wants to grow wings and, and, and spread to become someone else, become someone different, or, or just do something different in general with his music. And I think he was hinting at that and at certain tracks uh, in that album that we were just discussing. Um, and, you know, a lot of lyrics are very passionate and uh, it really constructs a, a unique world. I think, um, Lyricists had changed the. They, were, they, were, they had a. Was it you, Aku, to provide the lyrics on this one? I think. Let me see. Yeah, Aku, you. Yeah, the um, the sort of the teams. Yeah, this one. I think the sixth album. It really. I don't want to say it sounds like he was spinning his wheels, but I think he was kind of retreading some old ground, um, and maybe finding that it wasn't quite as um, fertile as before like sort of this style of, of like he'd kind of reached the end of what he could do with sort of this mode of um, of, of album and so to me it, it does kind of feel like like a pivot point album like sort of well I've sort of done all I can do in this style and I'm gonna try something else um, but yeah the a lot of the um, this is sort of the the last album that has sort of these kaiokyoku or not kaiokyoku the the group sounds era people on it sort of the and I, I think he moves on to sort of working with a different team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and and you can hear it uh, all throughout this album. There's a a definite shift somewhere on there, and um, you know, 1976. So. I feel like every uh, mid-decade, of every, the middle of every decade, uh, artists start to shift. Uh, they either get bored or there's just something that they want to change and they want to start the next half of the decade uh, in a new kind of way. Uh, and I, I feel this because sometimes I hear songs from 1986 or 1985 and you can tell that artists who had been making music previously start to kind of change their direction mid-decade to kind of... Um, Kind of change with the times because I think a lot of other artists in 1976 were also kind of experimenting in new directions and everyone's just trying to find a, a new voice almost um, to kind of keep people interested and keep themselves interested also because no no artist wants to stagnate no one ever wants to stay 
the same person who they were yesterday. And I think um, Saijo Hideki also probably felt that, you know, him with such a dynamic and um, dynamic, so much multi-dimension to his personality, probably wanted to, you know, start doing something that shows other parts of who he was and what he can do as an artist, I think. Yeah, I think, you know, when you do when you do get successful, there is a lot of pressure, I think, to sort of stay in that same mold that has been working so well for you. So I think, you know, wanting to move in a different direction or wanting to try new things, um, I think can be, you know, it, like it can be hard to turn, to, to turn, it's like if you're a train, like a train on a track and it can be, you know, you can't, it's hard to turn left and right when you're on like these train tracks. And I think, you know, this um, sixth album kind of sounds like that to me where sort of you're, you're, he's just moving along forward without, you know, but maybe he wants to sort of go left or right. I don't know. I don't know if that metaphor makes any sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it kind of does. Um, but, the, but there are still some, some really great songs on here that I like. I mean, I, I like the, um, the first track, A1, that it's his, his 16th single. Oh, yeah, that one to me, uh, that's one of those songs I think that sounds... I feel like it sounds best with an audience because if you listen to the the live performances, you know, everyone's clapping along and it gives the song kind of a boost. I think when you listen to the album cut, it almost feels like it's missing something just because it doesn't have that audience energy there to it, kind of adding to the, um, adding to the production, adding to the feel of the song. Because that one to me, I, I put it in, um, there's this German like these German uh called Schlager German songs and it's called Schlager it's like a genre um and to me this song sounds like a Schlager song <laughs> yeah I didn't know about that genre but I'll I'll take a listen um also let me see here I know Maboroshi uh B2 that was really good. I, I thought it was the, the, the arrangement on that. Again, uh, since they kind of have a new team, there's a little bit, things are a little bit different than before, but you know, things are still impressive. The guitar work is impressive. I mean, Hideki's vocals are still as strong as ever, uh, but they've probably reached a saturation point for him where he's like, well, you know, I've been doing these same vocals for the previous albums. I think maybe I want to move into a different vocal style and he definitely does that later on um, and this album like you said is a pivot kind of for him where he's just like trying to um, maybe put uh, the final chapter into this idol uh, persona era before he moves into his next phase of artistry and creativity yeah yeah I mean you do get kind of hints on that there's one of these I think it's track um, it's on the side B, uh, Atsui Manazashi, and mm -hmm. to me it sounds kind of like almost like proto-disco in a mm -hmm. way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, there's, there's a couple uh, up-tempo songs on here. B3 to Ai Aru Tabarashi uh, Tabirashi is, is actually really good too. There's a lot of good momentum on it. Um, I like the hook line on it. Ima wa bokudake. That's a really good one. Um, and I, I, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's, it's definitely, definitely changing for me, uh, and having listened to the previous five albums, like, for a week or two now, uh, and when I hear this one, every time I get to it, there's, like, this feeling of just, like, oh, wow, 
you know, things, things are, times are changing. <laughs> Even though like, you know, I, I didn't live through those times. I'm like, I could just tell that there was change going on in, in every sector of, of his life. Um, and I haven't read uh, his, um, his memoirs yet, but I'm sure if we go back to this era, to this time in 1976, uh, there's going to be a lot about what was going on with him. I, I wish I did have uh, his memoirs so I could read that. Yeah, he's written a lot. I think one of the interesting things about Hideki is just how much he himself has written. And, um, you know, if, if you search, you can find um, articles and things that fans have scanned and, like, you know, put on Twitter um, of just essays he's written or... Um, Things that he's written, um, I didn't search specifically about 1976, but I, I bet I, I, I wonder. I'm sure there's something out there, um, you know, as like a time of change. Um, they did just re-release um, or reprint his uh, memoir that he put out when he was 20, <laughs> which is extremely cute, and I bought that, and it has like the. Um, it has like the Hideki alphabet like at the end and like <laughs> and it has just like you know little stories from his childhood and um you know like the like his first fan was this um woman that worked at like the sweet shop <laughs> in his town and I guess when he was on like he she saw him on tv and like went over to like see his mom and um handed him this like savings book that she'd she'd kept for him and he like puts it in the story and he's like, hmm, I guess she was my first fan. <laughs> it was really cute. Um, yeah, but the the song that I, I kind of, it's not on the albums, it was a single, but that I would kind of want to close out with was um, Shijo no Ai, which I'm not sure if you listened to it, but this song to me is so fascinating it's it's very rhythmically complex and i listening to it kind of over and over again these last few weeks you know and, and watching the you know finding some live versions as well i think this song kind of is really almost like the pinnacle of what he was capable of technically um and i don't know if he ever attempts anything quite as um, technically like difficult as a single. I mean, this was a single. Um, and I there is one performance, I think it's, it might even be Yoro no Hitstagio, but um, you can just tell that the TV studio band is not capable of sight reading these charts. <laughs> like, the song is so difficult that the studio band can't play it. And, um, yeah, yeah, and, and so if you listen to the, um, if you listen to the performance, it's a little bit awkward because they're, it, like, he's not in sync with the studio band, like, they're, it, it just doesn't sound right, there's something wrong there, but, you know, you hear him with his band, um, and it's just, it's just amazing, um, but it's one of these ones where, like, it's in, I think, like, 12-8, maybe, um, but, just see all these like shifting rhythms and um just very it's just this beautiful beautiful song um that was you know released as a single and it's <laughs> i just find that so fascinating it was such a an ambitious choice um and 
yeah, I, I don't think you'd hear another artist release something like this, like a mainstream like pop artist, like put out a song like this. And it reminded me a lot of, um, there's this great American musician, Frank Zappa. Um, I'm, I don't know how familiar you are with Frank Zappa, but um, I, it made me, listening to this song really made me wish that Hideki could have worked with Frank Zappa because Frank Zappa was notorious for being extremely demanding of his vocalists. And, you know, he would give the musicians these charts and they would just be like a page of just like black because it was all notes. And, um, you know, I, I was just listening to this song and thinking Hideki could have nailed one of like Frank Zappa's charts. No question about it. He could have done it. Um, and I really would have liked to hear what that sounded like because, well, his the vocalist that he worked with a lot in the 70s was this guy, Napoleon Murphy Brock, who was also a horn player. And um, you do, I don't know, maybe maybe Napoleon Murphy Brock had a little bit of Hideki in him. Um, yeah, that, that song is just incredible. I, I think if you're listening to this, you should go and, and dial it up and um, just yeah just like take it in it's a fascinating song i really really like it yeah i have not heard it but i definitely will be bothering you for that link and once i do have a link i'll insert it into the post so that people can listen to it also and um but yeah there's so many collaborators and people that hideki saijo have worked with and that we weren't able to mention because as i said when we started like there's just so much information it's just, it would be impossible to go over it all in, in the amount of time that we had. But uh, we did do our best, I think. Uh, yeah, well, we can, the... we can give a shout out to, you know, his band of the time, Fujimaru and like the band. Um, yeah. Like who were his yeah. like main, you know, the, the backing band for all oh, those. Yeah. yeah, they were really, really great musicians. Really, really great. Oh, yeah, they deserve their own uh, little episode. Fujimaro, uh, for sure, is such an amazing artist. And we I'm, I'm, I'm kind of sad we didn't get to touch on him that much. But, you know, uh, w there can be another episode because there's so many more albums of Hideki to review. So who knows? We might do a part two in the near future. Uh, 2022 is right around the corner. So, you know, we'll definitely uh, uh, review our options and see what we can do because um, Hideki, Saijo... So much more, and we, we definitely should touch on more topics in the future. So I know we've done a lot of talking, um, and I think we can bring it to a close now that we've discussed his first six studio albums. We touched a little bit on his history and after his debut. So I'm so happy to have had the opportunity to bring you on and it's been such a pleasure speaking with you about it so it's, it's always so much fun talking to people about these albums because having both recently heard the majority of it in its entirety uh we both kind of kind of pick up on the same things and it's it's really enjoyable and uh you're such a joy to have on the show so thank you again oh my gosh no thank you so much um i really really enjoyed preparing for this and it's such a pleasure to talk about music um, I, I think that sometimes sort of music related shows and podcasts and stuff, you get, you get kind of caught up in like the drama and the story. And um, I think it's really nice to focus on just the music because 
you know, Saijo Hideki was all about the music and his so talented, just so <laughs> talented. Like I can't get over <laughs> yeah. it. I've been listening nonstop for three weeks solid and I just cannot get over how talented he was. Oh yeah, uh, 100%. Having heard his discography now, it really makes me uh, appreciate music culture and international music culture and music history and there's just so much we don't know and, and so much that uh, the world should know and I think feel like, I feel like we're finally starting to move in that direction as a culture, as a society, we're starting to appreciate Asian music more and more because it has so much depth and variety to it that we don't give it enough credit for. But, uh, you know, people like you, uh, and people like others, everyone is uh, contributing in their own way, and you know we're, we're all kind of headed towards this uh, consolidation of, of music uh, to where anyone can access it, and it's just going to be music, and it's not going to be international music; it'll just be music in general. And I can't wait for that, and uh, it's already happening. Um, so yeah, thanks again for being on the podcast. I'm going to go ahead and link all your information in the description. So. Anyone out there, if you want to know about 70s Idol culture, she has an amazing podcast that you can uh, listen to. There's many episodes. We have an episode together also, so I'll put all those, all that information in there for you to look her up. Um, so with that, I will uh, close out the episode. And oh, well, one more thing. Uh, uh, December 18th, we are having another Tokyo Disco at Sleeping Village, uh, 9 p.m. Tickets are on sale now, so if you are interested in coming to Chicago and seeing one of our coolest venues and listening to City Pop on vinyl in a large format, kind of large kind of auditorium, it's an amazing bar, amazing beer, amazing drinks there. Um, you'd love it. So if you are interested in coming to Chicago, December 18th, you can look at the information in the below description. So with that, thank you again, Idolcast. It's been such a pleasure. Uh, and we will leave you with uh, the end theme by Mika Bridgebook, which is her amazing song, Mirai. Have a great night. Yeah.
sky.